And if you're standing here with us, let's grab our Bibles. Okay, let's go to the Gospel of Luke this morning in chapter number 22. Luke, chapter number 22. Justin, you mind grabbing those communion elements really quick just to see if we missed anybody? I missed my own. And he came in this morning. If we missed you with the little uh, cups there and the communion wafers, let us know. You can flag Justin down there in the back. I think we missed a few. And uh, we'll take that at the end of our time together this morning. Let's go to the Gospel of Luke in chapter number 22. We're also going to be pairing a missionary with uh, a table groups. So each table group is going to have a missionary that for that year they're kind of committing to pray for and support and encourage. Uh, I think it'd be a great thing maybe on Christmas the table groups get together and try and bless these families in some way. But try and continue as the church grows to give you those relationships with these missionaries we support. And uh, our philosophy on missions has always been Fewer missionaries, greater relationship and support from us. Sometimes uh, churches will have, we're going to support 5 million missionaries at $2 a month. Okay, we want to have fewer missionaries we support at a greater level. And also it gives us the opportunity to have a a really strong relationship with them to communicate. uh, Things like we were able to do for the Love Groves in Ethiopia, we're able to do that with a smaller group of missionaries. And so we do want to encourage you to get to know these folks, pray for them. On your way out, there's a list there on that round table. You can take that. Stick in your Bible and pray for these uh, missionaries as you pray in the morning. I think it would be a really good thing. Okay, Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. We're going to start reading together in verse number 1. And we will study here um, the final Lord's Supper, right? Or the, I guess the initial Lord's Supper. You guys get the, the picture in your mind. I should have studied this out and remembered who drew it. Who painted the kind of the iconic Last Supper painting? Who was that? You guys know? Is it Da Vinci? Is Da Vinci a painter? I thought he invented stuff. What? I think it was Thomas Kincaid actually painted that. Um, if you're unaware, you can pick it up at your local. I don't know. I should have. I should have read that. But anyway, you got to get the picture in your mind of the Last Supper. Um, this is that meal, okay, that the Lord is gathering together, and uh, we'll see what it can mean for us today, as well as what's happening in the story. Okay, so Luke chapter 22. If you got your Bibles there? Let's grab it. Grab them. Go to verse number one. And feel free to follow along using that handout you got when you came in as well. Okay, Luke 22, verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill Jesus, for they feared the people. Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. And he went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him unto them. They were glad and promised, covenanted to give him money. And he promised and saw opportunity to betray him unto them in the absence of the crowds. Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb must be killed. And Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare for us the Passover that we can eat. And they said unto him, Where wilt thou that we would prepare? And he said unto them, Behold, when you are entered into the city, there shall be a man that will meet you, bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house where he enters in. And you'll say unto the good men of the house, the master says unto thee, where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? And he shall show you a large upper room that's furnished, and there get ready. So they went and found as he had said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. And when the hour was come, Jesus sat down, the twelve apostles with him, and he said unto them, with desire I have desired to eat the Passover with you before I will suffer. For I say unto you, I will not have any meat, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took bread, gave thanks, and brake it, and gave unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant, the new testament in my blood, which is shed for you. We're going to walk through this passage this morning, and I'll talk about the table. Okay, the table. All of us, a good conversation starter uh, for those of us who are socially awkward, and I put myself in that crew sometimes, right? Uh, What was your favorite meal, right? What was the best meal you've ever had? Some of us, it's going to describe food, right? We went to this restaurant in the city, and it was just mind-blowing, right, kind of meal. Others of us, it's going to be about the relationships at the table, and it might have been a Thanksgiving meal or a Christmas meal or uh, the meal where you met your spouse or your favorite meal you have. Or some of us have uh, stories we could tell about our least favorite meals, right? Uh, for the newlyweds in the room when you're figuring out how to cook, right, figuring that out. I remember uh, my wife is so kind. 
so kind, okay? Um, never really cooked a lot growing up, Sarah didn't. So when we got married, she thought she was going to go, you know, and make me a southern meal, okay? Well, you probably caught that drift by the music that we chose this morning. This is kind of where I come from, okay? Um, we were going to play some music around. I was like, do you know where bluegrass music? I'm like, yeah, it's on my top ten most played, okay? We can, we can pull this right up. I'm ready for it. But uh, she said, we're going to make, I was going to fry chicken, right? She was going to fry chicken. Now, um, cool, that's going to be great, right? So she goes, and she starts in the kitchen. She's frying, getting some oil heated up for the chicken, and uh, she asks, uh, it says it's supposed to be 250 degrees or whatever. I don't remember what it was. Some, some, this is the temperature the oil is supposed to heat up to, and she's like, how do I know when it's that you know, temperature? And I said, well, boiling point's 212, so once it starts boiling, we'll know we're close, right? Um, you're laughing because you know this, evidently. Like, this is a thing that people know, that the boiling point of oil and water would be different, right? That's just, they're liquid, they should be the same, right? That's what I thought. Uh, smoke, a lot of smoke is coming. Uh, still isn't boiling. I'm like, man, this is weird, but we still gotta wait until, you know, until it boils. Long story short, this thing is on fire. I mean, the whole oil, there's fire in our house. We're figuring out how to put this thing out. Um, I'm running to the kitchen. We had the, the kind of sink where the, you know, the wand could come out and you could spray it. I'm going to spray it, and then we're actively Googling what to do, and it says, don't spray it. So like, put away the water, right? We end up taking the pot out into the driveway and just setting it in the driveway and just let the elements take care of it, right? But, you know, we have had good meals. We've had uh, other meals. We've had interesting meals along the way. All of us have, right? This meal, I think, would have stuck out to the disciples. This meal stuck out to Jesus. He says that he's been longing to have this meal. He's been desiring to have this meal. Today, Jesus is at a table with his disciples, and if you walk through the Gospel of Luke with us over the past couple of years, this is now the seventh time that we've seen Jesus at a table sharing a meal with people. Seven times in 20 chapters, Jesus is sitting down teaching over a meal or fellowshipping over a meal or just enjoying a meal with people. The table is one of Jesus' favorite places to teach the Bible, one of his favorite places to share good news with, um, with people. Share love to unlovable people. He sat with tax collectors and prostitutes. He sat with religious leaders and Pharisees. He's used the table to move people from outsiders to insiders, to people who are far from God, to people who are close to God in relationship with God. Some of his most famous teachings we've studied have happened around the table. So again this morning, he's sitting at the table. And to remind us of the context of this passage, this is the final week of Jesus' earthly ministry. This is his last supper meal. Remember the past couple of week, the weeks we've been studying, the, the relationship between Jesus and the Pharisees has gotten increasingly hostile. We see in our passage this morning, they're desiring to kill him. They're now, they've gone past, we need to catch him in a lie or trick him with our questions, and now they're desiring for an opportunity to put Jesus to death. So it's heading quickly towards what will eventually be the crucifixion of Jesus, Okay. What I want to do this morning is kind of set it us up in, in three sections, okay? The first one is how Jesus sets the table, okay? How Jesus sets the table. And let's go back to verse number one and work our way through it, okay? Verse one, the Bible says the feast of unleavened bread was coming, which is called the Passover, okay? The Passover meal was arguably the most significant holiday that Jews would celebrate. They still celebrate it today. And uh, it stems all the way back to the story of the Exodus, in Exodus chapter number 12. And if you're unfamiliar with the Passover, I'll do a quick refresher for us this morning, okay? Uh, this, this moment of Passover goes back to when the Jews were enslaved in Egypt, okay? Egypt is the most powerful country in the world at this time. Uh, the Jews have been, uh, they're slaves for a long time. There's really no hope getting out of slavery. It's not like they can just go to Pharaoh and say, hey, we don't want to work here anymore and quit, okay? They were trapped in slavery, crying out to God. God raises up a leader named Moses, who God commissions at a burning bush to go and tell Pharaoh to set God's people free. I'm not happy, God says, with my people being enslaved and in bondage. So Moses, go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And, you know, Moses is going along the way. Maybe Pharaoh's going to be nice. Maybe Pharaoh's just going to release his million-person workforce. And he says, nah, right? The Bible says his heart gets hard. He says, no, I'm, I'm not going to let these people go. So you take option number B, letter B, right? And say, you know what? We're going to have to soften his heart a little bit. And God sends plagues to the nation of Egypt, 10 plagues, every one of them getting increasingly worse than the first. 
and they're all meant to soften the heart of Pharaoh to allow God's people to leave. But Pharaoh, instead of his heart getting softer, keeps getting harder, right? And that can often happen to us with conviction that comes from the Lord. Our heart either gets softened by the conviction that comes from the Lord or it gets harder from that conviction. So Pharaoh's heart is getting harder. He's resisting this truth. Keeps hardening, keeps hardening. Tenth and final plague. Uh, he still doesn't relent. And God says, this is going to be the worst plague of all. And we know the plague of the, the angel of death is sent into uh, the country of Egypt. And he says he's going to kill the firstborn of every family who does not spread the blood of a lamb over the doorpost of their doors. Be the final and worst plague. It's, it shows God's seriousness about sin and oppression and slavery. But the angel of death is going to come. He's going to kill every firstborn son. The only way to escape this death is to find a lamb, a perfect lamb, sacrifice this lamb, cover the doorpost of your house with blood from the lamb, signifying that those underneath that doorpost are trusting in the blood of the lamb. So when the angel of death would pass over, they would pass over that house, right? If he saw the blood at the entrance, the blood at the doorpost, the angel of death would literally pass over those homes. That's where they get the term Passover, right? And so I just want to point out from even Exodus chapter 12, what is, what is God using as a means to pass over people? He's using grace. Grace, he doesn't say staple your religious resumes to the front post of your house. He doesn't say how faithful you've been as a Jew living in Egypt. He doesn't say I want your synagogue or your, your worship schedule. I, I, I want you to show me how much you've given, how many little old ladies you've walked across the street. You, you staple that to the front of your doorpost, and if the angel of death comes and shows that you've been a good enough person, he's going to pass over you, right? No, it's grace. The only thing that's ever mattered is are we hiding under the blood, like we just sang, right? In the Exodus, he's saying, if you want to escape death, hide under the blood of the lamb, and so they do, and the angel of death comes, and for everyone who hid underneath the blood, the angel passes by and they're spared. For everyone who chose not to, they chose to disobey God, the firstborn in that home dies, including Pharaoh's firstborn. He loses it. He's freaking out, doesn't know what's happening. He says, fine. He frees God's people from slavery, and they get to leave. It's, it's this huge win. It's for Jews, this amazing gift to show how serious God takes freeing his people. And so in to remember the amazing miracle that this was, they instituted this, this meal, this Passover God told them to keep, as a practice by every generation for every year, that they would come together, they would remember the, the miracle that God did in their nation to bring them up out of Egypt. So that's what they're doing. They're gathering together for this holiday to remember the Passover, to remember the moment where they were spared from the death that was to come because of the blood of the Lamb. So this is this huge gathering. Many people would come into Jerusalem for this moment. It's this huge family gathering. Kind of get the idea of Christmas Eve, Christmas in our culture. Okay, everybody is traveling. The family Jews would travel often to Jerusalem to celebrate together uh, in, in kind of their religious capital. Every place is going to be booked. Every Airbnb is going to be reserved. Okay, every restaurant is going to be closed, kind of in that world. Verse 2. Verse 2, everyone's not excited about this happening. Everyone's not in the Christmas spirit or the Passover spirit, I guess. Verse 2, the chief priests and scribes sought together how they might kill Jesus, for they feared the people. All right, so here again, this is this great influx of population. People are coming into the city of Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Jesus has been doing these, these miracles and this teaching, and he's very popular, so everyone wants to be around Jesus. The crowds are insane around Jesus at this point. They, they want to see him. They want to hear him. They want to be around him. Jesus has already called out the religious leaders for their hypocrisy, and they're saying, you know, we gotta, we got to get rid of this guy. We didn't beat him in a debate, so now we've got to kill him. And now they're just waiting for the opportune moment to get him. But Jesus is surrounded by thousands of people all the time. So it's not necessarily easy to go get a cult hero of this group of people, the guy they're following, their, their, their savior, their master, their teacher, and grab him. Right? They're going to they're gonna start a civil war, right? They're, they're going to rise up against them. So they have to figure out a moment where they can somehow get him alone. And they figure out they need the help of an insider. That's what we see in verse number three. And then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being one of the number of the twelve. And he went his way, communed with the chief priests and captains, how he might betray him unto them. They were glad 
happy to promise to give him money, and he promised and saw opportunity to betray him, look at verse 6, in the absence of the multitude. He's trying to find a moment where Jesus isn't surrounded by people, where Jesus isn't surrounded by all of his fans, his followers, to be able to bring the Pharisees and religious leaders to get him. This is a really ugly scene, okay? And we really could have done an entire sermon just on the life of Judas and studied the story of Judas of how he got here and, you know, what this means of Satan entering into Judas, and maybe we'll do that at some point. But what we have here is a person who was around all the sermons. He saw all the miracles. He, he saw his power over creation. We saw him, he saw him feed the hungry and forgive the guilty. And yet when Satan comes to him with an opportunity, he doesn't resist or flee or fight. He opens the door and Satan comes in. And we have to ask a theological question that a lot of people ask from time to time. As a Christian, can we be possessed or owned in the same way by the devil or, or by demonic powers? The answer to that is no, because somebody already lives in you. If I'm in Christ, the promise of Scripture is I'm indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1 says he put the seal of the Spirit in my life. What that means is he's guarding me, he's protecting me, he's mine, and I'm his, and I'm, I'm hidden in his righteousness, right? He can't lose you, I can't lose him. Now, I for sure can be influenced by evil. I can be tempted by evil. The Bible says in 1 Peter that the devil's come to steal, to kill, to destroy, and so many of us have even after a decision to follow Christ and place our faith and trust in him, realized the power that temptation can bring. But I think it's a good reminder for us this morning, because sometimes as Christians, I think we get lulled to sleep, and we picture Christianity like we just got our ticket through Jesus for the Christianity cruise, and it's going to be really smooth sailing from here on out, right? We're going to you know, kind of putz around a little bit in the ocean of, of ease and listen to some K-Love and eat some shrimp at the buffet and enjoy some life, and that's what the life of following Jesus is going to be like. But Jesus paints a very different picture. He says Christianity is it's a war zone. It's their spiritual warfare, that there's an agenda for my life from God, and there's an agenda for my life from the evil one, and I'm going to have to fight. I'm going to have to resist these things. And I want to share with you guys what I saw this past week when I was reading this. What, what, what Satan did to Judas, that Judas immediately leaves Jesus, okay? If there's ever an influence in your life that is pulling you farther away from Jesus, farther away from a relationship with the Lord, there's usually a good clarifying moment for you that this may not be a relationship or an influence that is, that is helping me in the right way, okay? So Satan enters into Judas, and Judas immediately has to get away from him, right? If I got a relationship that's telling me I, I, you don't need to lean on the promises of Jesus, you don't need to worship in that church, you don't need to do these kind of things, I want to keep my guard up because those are good moments for me to realize that maybe this isn't a uh, a relationship that's going to be helping to me. So verse 7, verse 7, Judas leaves to sell out Jesus, but the other disciples get instructions from Jesus. Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover lamb would be killed. And Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, go and prepare the Passover that we will eat. So ladies or gentlemen, if you're the cook in your house and you got told the day of that you're in charge of the meal, you'd be a little stressed, right? Um, you got to go find a turkey on the morning of Thanksgiving. You're not going to get a very good turkey, right? You're going to end up with I don't know, some bologna sandwiches or something. It's probably going to end up getting on the day of. So Jesus kind of throws uh, Peter and John into the deep end here and says, I want you to go and prepare the food. Go and prepare the meal. And they say, uh, you realize it's today, right? They say, verse number nine, where wilt thou that we would prepare? In other words, uh, do you have a reservation somewhere? Do you have a spot picked out? Do you have somewhere you'd like to take this meal? And I love Jesus' instructions, verse number 10. Behold, when you enter into the city, you'll meet a man who has a pitcher of water. Follow him into his house. Talk to the master of the house. Says the master needs a room. He'll have a room. You can go in there and have the meal. This remind you of the story we saw a few weeks ago where Jesus is entering into the city of Jerusalem. And he tells the guys, go into the city, turn right, turn left. You'll find a colt there, never been ridden before. Tell the guy I need it. He'll give it to you. Bring it this way, right? And it goes exactly like he said it was going to go. So Peter and John probably at this point are thinking, this is weird. But it worked last time, so let's try again right? Walk into the city, find a guy carrying a pitcher of water, follow him into his house, ask to see his boss, ask his boss if he has a spare room that's already furnished and has the meal prepared. And it goes exactly like Jesus said it was going to go. They found it just as he told them. Jesus has made promises about the future to these guys. Promise about what their life is going to be like. Promises about how he's going to sustain them and hold them and care for them. Why do the disciples have so much confidence that Jesus is going to take care of them? 
because of situations like this. Like, why would, I, why would I walk into the city and ask the first guy with a water pitcher if we can stay in his house? Well, it worked last time with the donkey. Why don't we just try it again? Jesus here is showing us in this moment there are things going on that he's never going to be outflexed by the Romans. He's never going to be outwitted by the religious leaders. When he's captured and put to death, we understand from the, the Bible, this isn't just the, the work of the evil one. This is Jesus willingly allowing this to take place, that Jesus says, no man takes my life from me. I, I give it, Right? Jesus showing in this moment he's completely sovereign and in control. He's never going to be taken advantage of. He is the lamb that is willingly walking towards his own slaughter. And this week as I was kind of thinking through this, I had a kind of memory pop up in my mind. My, my lawn right now is just leaves. That's all it is. It's just leaves everywhere. And uh, it happens like in two days. Right? There's no leaves and there's all the leaves, right? Uh, so I came home. I flew to Tennessee this past week to spend some time with my family. And I flew back yesterday and pulled in the driveway and I'm like, where's my driveway? Like, I can't even see my driveway. I just parked my car right on top of the pile of leaves. Um, one of my least favorite thing about leaves in the yard is how much they cover up, okay? So my kids have this strange obsession with taking all the toys that are inside the house. They have toys outside the house that are made for outside. But they like to take the toys that are inside the house, take them outside, play with them, and then leave them, okay? Um, so every once in a while, I get to walk around, and you're picking up. Reese will take all of her animal stuffed animals, or she's going to play zoo outside, right? She's placed them in all the different corners of the yard, and uh, more often than not, I'm the one going to find all the zoo animals, right? And there's a, there's a Mickey Mouse that we left like three months ago that no longer looks like Mickey, right? Like he's grown in some weird, strange ways. But um, I remember one time I was trying to get the, I think it was Graham, to find a, a certain toy that I could see from the deck, but he couldn't see it. It was kind of buried in all the leaves, and I'm like, no, there's, it's right over there. It's by the playhouse. He'd be, I don't see it, right? I can't see it. Well, keep walking, keep walking, keep walking. Oh, there it is, right? That's kind of what I think Jesus is doing here with his disciples. Sometimes that's so much of what the Christian life is like. Jesus, I can't see it. Just keep going, keep going, turn left, turn right. Keep going. I don't see it. Jesus is not here. No, keep going. He sees what's happening. He knows what's going on. He knows what needs to happen to set up this meal. And he's just going to take his disciples step by step, find the guy with the water pitcher, go inside his house, ask for a room. He's going to give it to you. It'll be well furnished and ready. He's setting the table for his disciples. And that's the way we have to live as a Christian is understanding I might not see it, but he sees it. I may not understand it, but he understands it. That's the promise we get in the book of Romans, that he's going to work all these things together for the good of those who love him, that he can literally string all of our stories throughout human history in a way that ends up beautifully. And there's a lot of times I don't understand the notes that he's playing. I don't know why he brings us through the situations that he brings us through. I don't know why that note is in the song of my life, but he does. And he knows how to string them all together to make a beautiful, beautiful story. That's what makes him a sovereign father, a good father that we can trust in. Verse 14, verse 14. When the hour was come, Jesus sat down, the 12 apostles with him, and he said unto them, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I'm gonna suffer. Now he double says it here. Some, some of your Bibles might say, I've lusted, I've longed for. This is this, this, this intense desire in the heart of Jesus that he's wanted to have this meal with his disciples. Now is the food that good? I don't know. We were, we were talking last week with my kids about what their favorite holidays are. I've always been a Thanksgiving guy. I love Thanksgiving. I just love, I like the food. I'm not like a huge, nobody really likes turkey. If you really like turkey, you just like food that doesn't taste like anything. So nobody like really desires turkey, but that's, why do you put gravy on it, folks? It tastes like nothing, all right? So you're like, let me inject some Cajun spice into this thing so it tastes like something, right? But um, it's not the food necessarily. I just love Thanksgiving. I love the spirit of it. I like the, the weather. I like, you know, the, the traditions of Thanksgiving. And Graham said, Thanksgiving is my least favorite holiday. And I said, well, that's concerning to me, right? Uh, are we doing to talk about gratitude? And I said, why is Thanksgiving your least favorite holiday? I have to try all the food, right? He's, just, he's already nervous about Thanksgiving because I'm going to make him eat the yams or I'm going to make him eat something he doesn't want to eat. So he's already decided I'm anti-Thanksgiving because of that, right? So is Jesus like desperate together? I love Passover food. I, I can't, I've desired, been longing for Passover food. That's not what it is. He's not just wanting this good meal. This Passover meal is different. This is probably the third Passover meal that Jesus has shared with his disciples at this point. They did this every year. So what's different about this Passover meal? 
Well, he says, this time I'm about to suffer. I'm about to suffer. This this is the one that's right before I'm going to go to the cross. This is the last Passover meal that they're going to share together before the kingdom is inaugurated in a new way through the death and resurrection of Jesus. This was different. And so Jesus is showing them, look, ultimately I'm the real Passover that you've been waiting for. You've been celebrating it for generations. You've been uh, celebrating for all this time, and I'm telling you that I'm the one you've been waiting for. I'm the one that you've been longing for, and he is desperate to share this with his disciples. That when you're learning about this political slavery that you were freed from, I'm here to deliver you from spiritual slavery. That you were delivered from the oppressive leadership of a guy like Pharaoh through this new Passover meal, you're going to be welcomed into a new family. Those are shadows. This is the substance. Right? He said, I've longed for this moment. I'm the better Moses. I'm the better deliverance. I'm the true Passover. I'm the ultimate exodus, Jesus is going to teach us. This Passover is different. And Jesus has been desperately waiting for this moment. I have earnestly desired. That word desired is like this intense longing. It's like a student waiting for graduation. Two more weeks. Three more weeks. It's like a couple waiting for their wedding day. I've got some of you guys get engaged for like nine years now. Like we have 3,412 days until we get married, right? Countdown, right? We're longing for it. We're waiting for it. Jesus is excited looking forward to this meal. Looking forward to getting together about this, this Passover. I think one of the reasons is he finally gets to show them what the real Passover is all about. He's going to explain it to them. That this Passover is embodied in himself. He takes our eyes off the shadows of looking back to Egypt and puts the substance of who he is in front of them. I like barbecue. Uh, I like smoking food. It's a hobby that Sarah is okay with because it benefits the family, right? Uh, I have three kids at home, so going on six-day golf trips is not really in the cards for me right now, okay? Um, So barbecue, I can spend time outside and the whole family gets to benefit from it, right? So um, and I, I love it. I do. I'll, I'll shop for the sale on the meat, and I'll wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning, and I've got it rubbed and marinated and ready, and I'm going to put it in the smoker, and I've got my temperature probes in there, and I'm going to go out there every hour, and I'm going to spritz it with uh, the apple cider vinegar, and I'm going to watch it. I'm going to take pictures of it, put it on my social media so nobody cares about it. Right? I'm, 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 I'm into it. Right? I love it. I enjoy the whole day, 8 to 10 hours of cooking this food, putting it together for the family. And you know what happens after I eat it or after I make it? They say, uh, yeah, it was good. So no, 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 you don't understand. There's a new rub I tried, and there's a little bit more bark on the outside this time. And I don't know if you noticed, but uh, when I squeezed it, like, the, the juice came out. Like, did you see it? Yeah, no, it was good. No, I, I don't think you get it. Like, this took me 10 hours. I don't think you understand how long I've been waiting, like, for this reaction from you, right? So now Sarah knows the end of the first barbecue bite has to be mind-blowing or else I'm going to be sad, right? Wow, right? That's the best thing I've ever eaten. This is kind of like what Jesus has been waiting for. Like, I, I want to explain all of this to you. All of the, like, the, the, the lamb that was there and then the unleavened bread and the, and the wine. Like, this is what it's all about. This is the truth of all this stuff we've been waiting for. I've been waiting for thousands of years to explain this to you guys. Sometimes we have this mindset that Jesus dying on the cross was plan B. That like they tried to figure it out. It's like the whole, you know, got God's advisors up in heaven. Like, hey, you know, I don't think this is going to work out. You know, the, the humans, they've been sitting, sinning. We've got to figure out what to do with all this sin. We've got to plan. And you know what, Jesus, I'm sorry. I think, I think the only way to work for this to work is for you to die. We, we've tried to figure out all the other options. And we've tried to plan A and plan B. It. We're just going to have to call your number. You're the guy that, that's going to have to go down there and be the perfect sacrifice. So this is from the very beginning. This was the plan. Genesis chapter 3, God promises he's going to send his son, his seed, to crush the head of the serpent. All the way to the book of Revelation where it tells us there's a book that was written before the foundation of the world called The Life of the Lamb That Was Slain. This has been the plan from the very, very beginning of time that this lamb would come and pay the sacrifice for our sins. God knew we were going to blow this whole thing up before he ever created us. But he made us anyway. He says, I'm going to create them. I'm going to love them. I'm going to rescue them. I'm going to reconcile them. I'm going to bring them back to myself. That's the beautiful nature of this gospel meal, this last meal that Jesus has been preparing for, setting the table for since the very beginning of creation. Jesus sets the table. Number two, Jesus foretells a future table. So they get together, they're getting ready to eat, verse 14. Got the apostles with him. He says, I, I've desired to have this meal with you guys, but, verse 16, I'm not going to eat any more of it 
until it all be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He says, I've been so looking forward to this meal, but I'm not going to eat. What? Like, what is Jesus talking about here? He said, I'm not going to eat until all of it's fulfilled in the kingdom. He knows this is the very last Passover that these men will ever celebrate and look back at the, the exodus from Egypt. Look back to Moses and the, the lamb that was slaughtered for the, the doorpost of the home. This is the last meal they're ever going to look back to on Passover to Moses. From here on out, they're going to look back at the lamb who was slain, whose blood was spread, not on a doorpost, but on a cross. That he's now going to be the new meaning of this Passover meal. There's going to be something new from this point forward for this holiday. He says, I'm not going to eat this meal with you, and I'm not eating it until the kingdom is ushered in. What Jesus is introducing to us here, and I won't spend long on this, but what he's introducing to us here is as we get around this table, and it's easy to look back at what happened in the past with Jesus, our, our Passover lamb who was delivered up for us. It's easy to look at the elements that we'll look at in a few moments of the, the bread and the, and the cup. But he says, I want to give you just a taste and understanding that there's actually a greater table. Not just a table in the past that we look back to and remember the sacrifice of Jesus and the deliverance of, from Egypt. We look forward in anticipation of a greater meal. He's pointing us towards Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 through 9. I nerded out a little bit this week, so I was studying. I was sleeping in a, my dad had a heart attack last week, so we were spending, I was down in Nashville with them, and I slept in this, like, you know the hospital recliner things that they tell you you can sleep in? You're like, how does a human sleep in this thing, right? There's like a bar right in the middle of your back, and there's, so I didn't sleep a whole lot, so I got to spend a little extra time studying, which is why we'll get out at like 12.45 today. Um, <laughs> But I was just nerding out. I'm like, the, the entire connection, of the, the entirety of Scripture through the lens of the, this Passover concept, all the way back in the beginning, Exodus chapter 12 is, is pointing us towards Revelation chapter 19, when there will not just be the lamb that was slain for Passover to deliver from the angel of death, but there is a coming meal. Revelation 19 teaches us and tells us Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. Sometimes we, we question, am I actually blessed? Right? We know that we're supposed to say we are. If y'all don't know this, Jesus is, yes, he's going to die in a couple chapters from this, but Jesus is alive this morning. He's alive this morning, and he's saving a seat for you at a table in heaven. And it's amazing there will be people there, not just from one nation, but from every nation, not just from one tongue, but from every tongue. And he's gathering us together in this incredible celebratory meal in heaven. And he says, you're blessed. You're blessed if you're called into that marriage supper. And there's moments where I really do question, am I actually that blessed? We get comparative with other people. We start looking at how big, you know their retirement nest egg is. Or we start looking at what cars they drive or the, the health that they have. Like, am I actually blessed? Because we start measuring it in those temporal terms, how happy I am, how content I am, how easy my life is. And I'm telling you right now, the only thing that's going to matter 10,000 years from now, the only thing that you will care about 10,000 years from this morning is that you will count yourself blessed that you've been invited to sit at that table and be welcomed into the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is where we're headed. This is a beautiful thing. And I want you to know that we're, many of us, we're in seasons of suffering right now and pain, and you're wondering, does my life get better? The Bible says Yes. Yes, it does. The best for all of us is ahead. Cancer and covetousness and Alzheimer's and depression, it doesn't win. It doesn't win for those of us who know Jesus. He's got a table for us in heaven that we are longing to eat at, where we'll gather around together, we'll sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. It's gonna be awesome. So Jesus foretells a future table. Then number three, number three, Jesus sits at the table. That was the world's longest introduction, okay? Number three, let's talk about what he teaches us, okay? It's not just a moment where Jesus is looking back on the Passover that took place in Exodus. It's not just a moment where Jesus is looking forward to what's going to happen in the marriage supper of the Lamb in the future. He's going to say right here in the midst of it, I want to show you how this meal speaks of me. Verse 17, he took the cup, gave thanks, and said, take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I say, and you will not drink again of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. He took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying also, this is my body which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, also the cup after supper, saying this cup is the New Testament in my blood, 
which is shed for you. So this might sound a little bit weird. They would structure the meal this way. This is very traditional in a Jewish household to structure the Passover meal this way. Uh, the leader of the house would stand up at the beginning of the meal to kind of inaugurate it, okay? If you're thinking like a Thanksgiving meal or a Christmas meal or someone sits at the head of the table, right? Someone's kind of setting the tone for the house, for the meal. Jesus would have been that kind of leader. And what the leader would do is they'd stand up, they'd give thanks to God for the meal, for what he's done, and then usually the youngest in the family, like one of the kids, would speak up and say something like, why is, why is today's meal so special? Kind of like a tradition, right? You got to make your kids do the traditions. Say, why is the meal so special? Why is the meal so special? Well, let me tell you, right? That's kind of the, the structure of the Jewish Passover. They, I would thank you, God, for this meal. Why is this meal so special? Let me tell you, okay? And then the, the head of the house would talk about the deliverance from Egypt. They would talk about how, how God brought them up and the miracles that he worked. And they would kind of quote from Exodus and from Deuteronomy and stories and passages from the Old Testament that would show the beauty of the Passover and the significance of the Passover, what it means. And that's just kind of how they would structure it. So Jesus is sticking with tradition. He gives thanks for the meal. He stands up as the head of the family. He, he uh, inaugurates the meal. And then he says something that has never been said before about any Passover meal before that. This is the, the unleavened bread which was instructed by God for them to eat this unleavened bread. If you don't know what unleavened bread is, think of a roll from Texas Roadhouse. You guys ever been to Texas Roadhouse? It's the exact opposite of that, okay? So <laughs> you're thinking like light, fluffy, enjoyable, buttery, okay? That is not what is in your communion cup this morning, okay? Unleavened bread is to remind them about the suffering of the people of Egypt. It talks about the bread of affliction in the Old Testament. This is the, the suffering that the nation of Israel went through as they were enslaved in Egypt. And so Jesus would grab the bread, or the, normally they would stand up and say, you know, this is the bread which reminds us of the affliction that our people went through in Egypt. It reminds us of the slavery that they were in. And so Jesus stands up and says, this is the bread. But instead of saying, this is what our forefathers did and what they suffered through, and Jesus grabs the bed and said, this bread is my affliction. Not the affliction that they went through. This bread is about the affliction that I'm going to go through. This bread is my body which will be broken for you. Then he grabs the cup of wine. He says, this isn't just symbolic, looking back on the blood of the lamb that was spread on the doorposts in Egypt. No, this, this blood is my blood that'll be shed for you. This is the new covenant. This is the new testament in my blood. This is different, he's saying. This is a unique Passover. You know what's really interesting in this Passover meal? You see the bread of affliction. You see the the blood, the, the wine, what's missing at this meal that would have been placed at just about every other Passover meal, you think through the cast of characters of the Old Testament Passover, one is missing. That's the lamb. The lamb on the table as Jesus comes together. Why is that? Well, the lamb is not on the table because the lamb is at the table. Jesus is the lamb. I'm preparing myself to be the lamb that would be slain. I'm preparing myself to be that Passover lamb. I will allow my blood to be shed and my body to be broken. And that is the way that the wrath of God is going to be passing over your life. The, the wrath that I deserve, the punishment that I deserve, I, I'm going to be passed over by that wrath and punishment because I'm, I am hiding underneath the blood of the lamb. And I want to let you know, church, this morning that the only way to escape the wrath of God is not rule-keeping or morality or sobriety or being a better husband or a better father or pursuing you know, sexual purity or all these things. They're, they're good things, but none of those things, none of those things will save you. Only finding yourself hidden underneath the blood of the Lamb can save you. You are only saved by faith in the substitute, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. That is the only thing that will allow the wrath of God, the punishment that I rightly deserve because of my brokenness and sinfulness to pass over me. Now, I want to take ourselves from here, and I want you to picture that original Passover. Okay, let's go back to Exodus, and let's think about how, what that whole experience would have been like. You've been instructed, death is coming. The only way to be spared is by the blood of the lamb, and you went and you did it, right? You, you went and you found a lamb that was perfect and spotless, and you you followed all the instructions. You spread the lamb on the doorpost of your home. I think there's one of two ways that you sit there and you wait through that night. One, and probably our personalities dictate a little bit of this and also our faith, right? One, you can sit there all night incredibly fearful and, and insecure and wonder, did I do it right? 
Is the blood of the lamb going to hold up? Is it going to work? Or is death going to touch our home? Did I maybe not apply enough of it? Did I not do exactly right? Did I, maybe it's not going to work. And you overthink it and you're anxious, you're insecure. Or maybe there's other homes and they place themselves under the butt of the lamb on their doorpost and they're at their families inside resting, taking a nap, completely faith-filled and trusting in the, in the confidence of the blood of the lamb that it's sufficient. Here's what I want to tell you. Most of us, if we're believers, no, all of us, throughout our lives will be in both of those situations. There will be times where your faith is so strong and you have so much confidence. I know what's going to happen to me. I know I have the, my, my confidence is in the blood of Jesus. Are you washed in the blood? I am washed in the blood. I know it. I have this confident assurance. God's going to take care of me. Even if I lose my life here, I'm going to be there in heaven. I've got this confident assurance in him. There's other times where I'm like, I hope this works. And I, I, I believe, I believe, but I'm anxious still. I'm nervous still, and I see some things going on in my life that seem to speak a different truth to me, and I'm concerned about what those things mean. Here's what I want you to know about both of those homes in Egypt that day. The insecure home, the fearful home, and the confident home. Both are saved. Because Christianity, our, our, the saving nature of our faith is not found and the strength of your faith. It is found in the object of your faith. The object of your faith is what saves you. The blood of the lamb is what saves us, and it is sufficient for us. So sometimes we come in here on a Sunday, and we feel it, man. We feel close to God. Like this morning, we're over there, and why are you washing the blood? I'm feeling it, man. I walked around in here. I'm toe-tapping. We had a few folks trying to get a clap going. I was trying with you, man. We weren't, you know. A bunch of New Englanders around us. We can't get it going, right? We can't get the clap to, to last. Once we get it going, it dies four seconds later. But that's all right. That's all right. We'll get it eventually. But you know, like you're feeling it. You feel worship. You feel the closeness of the Lord. You feel like, man, I can pray, and I feel like he's right here next to me. There, there's times where I open the Bible, and it just seems like every word is just, it's for me, and I, I know he's real, and I know, like, I feel it, right? There's other times where you don't. You don't feel it. Sometimes we come to church and we're not thinking, man, this is awesome. I can't wait to get there. Sometimes we walk in and you think, man, I blew it last week. I was a mess over these past seven days. But I, my faith, the reality of my salvation is not based on how I feel week by week. It's not based on my spiritual performance. My acceptance into the kingdom of God and at this table in heaven is 100% rooted in the blood of the lamb. That's good news. Good news. What Jesus is saying here has huge implications. You realize the verse, end of verse number 20, he says, this is the New Testament, the new covenant in my blood. What he's saying is this blood that I'm gonna shed, it's gonna, it's gonna change things. It's gonna initiate what the Bible teaches us is called the new covenant. That this blood sacrifice is gonna change how mankind relates to God. This new covenant is ushered in by Jesus. There's a new sacrifice, not of bulls and goats and lambs, but of the lamb, that this is now the new era. Now, when he's talking about this new covenant, he's referencing back to a book of the Old Testament called Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31 teaches us about this new covenant. And the prophet of God in that passage says, this is a new covenant that Jesus is gonna come and usher in. It's a covenant where God's laws aren't gonna be on tables and on paper, they're gonna be on human hearts. That it's gonna be an inside out kind of kingdom, an inside out kind of relationship. And Jeremiah 31, verse 34, good news, says, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, I will forgive their iniquity in this new covenant, and I will remember their sin no more. I want you to know this week, Satan would love to condemn you for the things you've done, for the things you've said, for the ways we messed up over these past seven days. The grace of Jesus Christ has already covered those things. And what's interesting is when I meet with Christians sometimes, there's these things where we know Jesus can forgive. Like we know I said something I should have said, and I, I, you know, I cut off that person in traffic, and I was a little bit you know, testy with my kids, and I, I know Jesus can forgive those things. And then there's also big things, and we have a harder time believing that Jesus can forgive those. Like, oh, I know Jesus forgives my lies, and he forgives my, you know, my, my covetousness. I know Jesus is, is, is forgiving of those things, but the big things in my life, I just don't know if the blood is sufficient to cover those things. And Satan will bring them up and make us feel condemned and ashamed. 
and I'll bring up things about our past. This is what the word of God has to say about your past. This is what you say to Satan when he brings up the things that Jesus has forgiven. My sins are many, but the blood of Jesus Christ, the grace of Jesus Christ is sufficient for all of those. He said, I'll remember your sins no more. No more. That means your infidelity. That means your abortion. That means your adoption. Not your adoption, that's a good thing. Uh, your deception. It means our addictions. It means the, the gambling problem that we have, the stuff we've been looking at on our phones that we don't want no one else to know that you've been looking at. The things you said to your spouse in anger. The way you scream at your kids. Now, those things aren't minimized. It's not like Jesus is so patient with all of my infidelity. It's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus Christ died for it. He died for my infidelity. He died for my lustful heart. He died for my addictions. He says, I will remember your sins no more. This is not a get out of jail free card. Jesus went in our place. This is just. And the good news of Christianity is you don't have to pay for the sins that we've committed because Jesus, the Lamb of God, will pay for them in our place. And so this morning as we come to the table, I want to encourage you in your Bibles, if you have them, to go to the book of 1 Corinthians, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I want to talk about what this table means. Because Jesus says not only to his disciples to take this meal and to remember him, we're told as the church we have a responsibility to continue to take this meal and to remember the sacrifice of Jesus. What we call the table in our modern lingo is the communion table. And this is for God's people. This is for his children. And we are to do just as Jesus instructed us to do, which is to continue to gather together and to take this table until he comes and returns. So uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, let's start in uh, verse number 23, okay? For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. The same night, it's a story that we just studied, right? The same night that Jesus was betrayed, the same night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take and eat, this is my body which is broken for you, do this in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying this cup is the new covenant, the new testament in my blood, this do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. Now, this is not a literal thing, okay? Some of you may have grown up in a religious tradition that tells you that the bread and the elements you're about to receive literally change into the blood of Jesus and the body of Jesus. We do not believe that, okay? Um, what you have in your hands this morning is a COVID-safe communion cup, okay? It is grape juice, and it is a tasteless cracker. This is not the literal body and blood of Jesus. This is something we do in remembrance of. It's a memorial to Jesus, okay? This is not uh, necessarily something that something spooky and spiritual happens to the elements that are here. Now, this is an opportunity for us to remember. And then there's a lot of times we take it and we get so rushed. We get so rushed when we take the table. And this is one of the reasons that I like in our particular Christian tradition, we have it a little more spread out because it, it, it puts a, an emphasis on it where we take our time um, because that's what the Apostle Paul tells us to do. He tells us before we come to the table to do a couple different things. If you continue reading, verse number 26. It says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you show the Lord's death until he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily. This is talking about, um, this is reserved for those of us in Christ. So if you're in the room this morning, you say, I've not yet decided to become a Christian. I'm still kind of investigating this and, and, and studying and figuring out where I stand on Jesus. We are so glad that you're here. Um, but we would encourage you not to take the elements because that's, a, that's a, uh, something that Jesus has reserved for those of us who are in Christ, who are his children. And so if you're here and you're still figuring out where you, what you believe and where you're, you're kind of placing your faith and trust in, we would encourage you to uh, withhold from taking this this morning. But he says in verse number 28, let every man examine himself and let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. When we, when we take communion, when we take the table, we're told to investigate our hearts, to pray and ask the Spirit to convict us of, of sinfulness, in our hearts, of the reality of our brokenness. You ever had a meal that um, somebody else paid for that you wouldn't have been able to have if somebody else didn't pay for it? 
That's happened to Sarah and I a few different times. People give us maybe a kind family from the church will give us like a gift card or something to a restaurant that I have no business being in. Okay, like uh, where you go and you realize like this was my rent when I was first married. Like this is just insane, right? But it's incredible. And the whole time you're eating, you're just like, I don't deserve this. I don't know what I'm doing here. This is way too expensive for me to enjoy. But somebody else paid for it, right? That's kind of the heart that Jesus is asking us to come to the table with. Is like, I, I am mind blown that I get to take of the, of the cup in this way because of the sinfulness of my heart, because of the things that I've said. This isn't meant to bring shame. It's meant to bring awe at the forgiveness and mercy of Jesus. And I want to get my heart right with him before I come to the table. And I realize, man, I am blown away that, again, I come to you as a forgiven child, that you have paid for all of these things. Jesus, would you show me areas in my life and my mind and my heart that are out of alignment with who you are? That's not God beating you up. Conviction is not the Holy Spirit beating you up. It is it's shining a light on things that aren't good for us. It's shining a light on things that are sinful in our hearts. So he would come and you want to examine himself and let him take of that bread and drink of that cup. So we're commanded to do this on a regular basis. We're commanded to remember the sacrifice of our Lord. Because a lot of us, we have, uh, we have religious amnesia, okay? Um, we forget. We forget how we relate to the Lord. We forget the grace that he's shown to us. We forget the mercy that he's given to us. So this is an opportunity for us every service that we get together to take the Lord's table, to once again preach the good news to our hearts, that we were far from him, and yet he drew us near, that we were stained with sin, yet he's washed us in his blood. And this morning is our opportunity to do that. If you're in the room and you have yet to place your faith and trust in Christ, we would encourage you to do that today, to turn from your sinfulness, the insufficiency of your, of your own morality and self-righteousness, and place your faith and trust in the blood of the lamb that was shed for you, that is the only thing that's going to allow the wrath of God, the punishment that I deserve to pass over me. And so this morning, what an amazing thing to invite you to place your faith and trust in Christ and then immediately after to, to take up the table with us. Okay, so we'll, we'll have a word of prayer. Uh, we'll have an instrumentalist come and then we'll take the table in just a moment. Father, we love you. And this morning, God, I pray that you would remind us. I pray that this bread and, and this cup would give life to the weary hearts in this room.